The screening was on December 7th. On December 6th, they were still mixing the final reel on the dub stage with the final visual effects being dropped in literally on the dub stage. There was a guy from Dolby there, like literally ready to catch the reel off the thing, take that reel and get on a plane and fly overnight to get to the theater. And the screening was already going in the theater and the last reel wasn't in the theater yet. And he literally ran in and popped on the projector and play. And it was down to like, it was a movie in itself to get the movie to screen that day. Hi, this is Alan Howarth. I was one of the original sound designers for Star Trek 1 through 6, and you're listening to Trek Untold. Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I am your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Star Trek is known as a breakthrough hit for a number of reasons, whether it's the grounded morality aspects of it, the fanciful sci-fi elements of it, or the astounding visual effects that transport you into this other world. All that's true, but there's another piece to this puzzle that completes the journey, and that is the sound of Star Trek. Today's guest is Alan Howarth, and whether you know it or not, you've heard his work in tons of movies you grew up with. Alan was the sound designer for all six of the original Star Trek films, from the motion picture in 1979 all the way to The Undiscovered Country in 91. All the unique sounds you hear are thanks to his work, which continues to influence the modern Trek series today. Beyond Star Trek, Alan has been a sound designer on Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula film, The Hunt for Red October, Raiders of the Lost Ark with Steven Spielberg, Stargate, Back to the Future 2 and 3, and many more. And he's also worked multiple times with John Carpenter in films like Escape from New York, Big Trouble in Little China, They Live, and the Halloween series. So this episode, it's a deep dive into sound design and why this art form is so critical in making a film a success or a flop. I've said in the past when we've had guests who work in visual effects that you'll never look at film in the same way again, but in this case, after hearing from Alan Howarth, you'll never listen to a film in the same way again. But before we get into this week's episode, I have to ask you, are you following Trek Untold on social media yet? You can find us over on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, all at Trek Untold, one word with no spaces. You can also become a Patreon supporter for this podcast over at patreon.com slash trekuntold. Here, you can directly contribute to keeping this show running at full power for as low as a few bucks a month. If you do this, you'll have early access to new episodes, the ability to ask future guests questions, check out exclusive merchandise, and other special benefits. We've also got an official merch store and an Amazon store filled with Star Trek goodies. So if you want to rock a Trek Untold t-shirt to the next con you're going to, or order something Star Trek related for yourself or someone else, please use the links in the show notes to help us help you. Shout out to our show sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, makers of fine 3D printed Star Trek inspired toys and accessories for collectors of all kinds. But you'll hear more about them later on. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. 
Computer, access interview file. All right, so you folks know the sounds of Star Trek. Now it's time to meet the man behind them. You know him as a sound designer and a composer, but as he likes to be referred to, he's a sonic composer, which is the coolest job title I've ever heard. Today, we are joined by Alan Howarth. Alan, how's it going today? Good morning. Here we are in the west coast of uh, the United States, and uh, we're in my my workspace studio. Uh, we can see synthesizers and guitars, and the you know what you can see is all this computer keyboard interface stuff. And I, this is where I work every day. Yeah, that is the coolest studio. I, I love looking at composer studios, and they're always so different. They kind of reflect who they are a little bit. Uh, but not even just that. It's just so much fun seeing the different things that are around the person and how they inspire the artist. And you got like a lot of cool guitars on your wall. I see you've got uh, some They Live merchandise behind you, too. Uh, it seems like a fun place to work. Yeah, yeah. No, and actually, it's, there's less gear now than there was in the 80s when I was doing this. Uh, so much of it has become now software. But there used to be fleets of keyboards going down all the walls because each one had its own unique uh, sound and function. And uh, a lot more tape recorders. You'd see a lot of reels of tape, 24-track machines, 8-track machines, 4-track machines. Uh, because before digital recording, it was analog recording, so it was tape. So having multiple decks for different functions was part of the deal. Yeah, we're going to get into some of the tools of the trade because I really want to do get really granular with you. Uh, since we got you here, you are an expert. I want you to get as granular and technical as you want today. So that's just me letting you know. Feel comfortable to throw out all the lingo you got. Um, cool. but, yeah, but we're going to get up to that a little bit later on. I wanted to kind of start things off here with you, Alan. Uh, and that's by asking you the first question I ask all my guests on this show. And that's, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Were you a fan of the show growing up? Okay, so I'm going to put a date on this so we can get focused I'd say it was about 1967, 68. Um, I remember sort of being up all night with my band and doing craziness, and we were still up, and I put on the TV, and on comes Star Trek. And I'm going, whoa. And just got sucked into this whole sci-fi, you know, off-world world that it created. And thought it was the coolest thing on television. It was just, uh, I was there. I went, went to that space. And so followed it, you know, as a, as a rock and roller. I mean, at the time, um, I was I, I was a, a bass player in a rock band. Um, we hadn't made, gotten to the point where we had recording contracts, so we were playing local, local gigs. Uh, one band was called the Tree Stumps. Uh, the one at the, at the Star Trek moment was called uh, um, the Renaissance Fair. My influences were Jimi Hendrix and Pink Floyd and, and all that kind of prog rock and, and echoey, spacey stuff. So Star Trek fit right into that, into that bag. So you actually had a band essentially devoted to the sound of Star Trek? Not devoted to Star Trek, but it uh, influenced. Influenced, okay. It's kind of like that, that sci-fi sort of sound, maybe we'll call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It all matched. It all, it all, you know, where my head was at and where that Star Trek was at all was in the same, same space. That's really cool. And, uh, the, and the music we played, obviously, was, you know, covers of The Doors and and Pink Floyd and, you know, Quicksilver Messenger Service and Jefferson Airplane and whatever was popular that people wanted to hear when we played. Let me get a little bit more background information about you, Alan. Uh, can you tell us where you grew up, who your parents were, what they did, and what little Alan wanted to be when he grew up? Did he always want to be a rocker? Was that the plan? No, no, that didn't come on until 
high school, you know. Um, little Alan grew up in New Jersey, specifically in East Brunswick. Uh, little Alan was, did, had an affinity to art, though. I was, I was an artist kid, so I, I showed talent in drawing and painting and coloring books and stuff like that. And uh, the, the, so the drawing, painting, sculptor kid is the one I started becoming in school. Uh, but as a side note, my dad had an, a little, you know, 12 key accordion up in the attic and sort of, it was interesting. And I had a, a cousin that played piano. So there was a piano at her house. So sort of plunking around on music keyboards was part of the deal. And then you know, I remember in the third grade, you know, they, they have this program where they, they test all the kids for music aptitude and they send a little letter home and say, Hey, you're, your your kids showed music aptitude. You should think about renting a musical instrument from us, right? So they were pushing musical instruments, and so uh, I took that as oh, that's all, oh, I could do that. I looked at the school band, and at the time, the musical instruments that were in the band were just the band. There was no guitars, there was no keyboards. So the coolest instrument I thought in the band was the saxophone. So I went for the alto sax. So I played alto sax in the school band that was going up through you know grade school, junior high to high school, and still keeping sort of the art card up front. And there was this moment in junior and high school, I was the president of the art class. I was the one that was going to be the professional artist. And this girl, Kathy, that was in the, in the, the art club said, hey, my, my boyfriend Dave has this, has this band and wanted to know if you wanted to sit in for a session. They're playing at a sock hop at the girls' Catholic high school. And we read charts, right? So it was like dance music, da 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 da. And I went and played. And at the end of the night, he handed me eighty dollars, and my eyes went wide. What? <laughs> so all of a sudden, heck, art! I'm going for music. Well, it turned out Dave was then starting a rock band, and he needed a bass player. So I but I pestered my mom to go down to De Fiori's music and buy me a Kingston bass, which is sort of like an off-brand Chizo thing. And I got my Sears and Roebuck bass amp and I, I started playing bass and I immediately became a bass player in Dave's band. And that sort of launched the rock and roll thing. And so this would be 1965, as far as the timeline. Then from Dave's band, there was a local band called the Monterey's that was the guys who were in my high school. I was in North Olmsted High School, now in Cleveland, Ohio. So, so sort of 1960, my, my family moved from, from New Jersey to Ohio. So now I was a, a Cleveland, Ohio kid. Then modulated to a band that was actually very popular on the West Side called the Tree Stumps. And so in the Tree Stumps, we actually made a record. And, and you know, when we played, there was like a thousand kids that showed up. And it was sort of a Beatle band. You know, we grew our hair longer. And I remember getting in trouble for long hair in school and all the kind of fun stuff. Then from Tree Stumps, uh, we, we opened for like, uh, we won the Battle of the Bands. We opened for Paul Revere and the Raiders at the Cleveland Hall and stuff like that. And got the first feel of what it would be like to be successful in the, in the band business. And uh, so graduated high school, went to community college. And first year in community college was, well, actually, I, I, my first year at college was at Baldwin-Wallace Conservatory of, of arts and music was, was pretty serious, but it was expensive. Mm. And at that point, uh, I was like, I was work. I was like working nights at UPS 
to load trucks to pay the bill in the morning and I was like really tired not making it and the, meanwhile the band kept growing and we got uh, got more popular so I sort of went to left left the college went to a community college eventually just went to, to the band business and you know we had our own band uh, the, the band that was after tree stumps was called the Renaissance Fair there was a, a lead singer that eventually went on to be fairly famous named Woody Leffel he was like a, a Robert Plant kind of character um, on his own and meanwhile I sort of got more and more involved in the equipment and, and uh, worked at this music store I mentioned De Fiori's music I was like the guitar repair guy down in the basement but then they had synthesizers upstairs and I'd go up and fool with the synthesizers and eventually bought one I was really attracted to electronic music so at one point I started my own original band where I started to write music and uh, that band was called Braino which was sort of like caustic music and that's where we really did the Pink Floyd thing um, uh, I had a, a sound guy that was involved named, named Brian Risner and so he now had tape recorders and echoes and we were in quadraphonic and we played in this in this small funky bar in the west side of Cleveland called the Smiling Dog Saloon so we came like every Tuesday night Braino played which was you know, just the off night and we could kind of be as crazy as we wanted but we had the gear because remember I was in the music store and I had acquired all the stuff. So the the shtick at Smiling Dog is he would hire actually uh, national level jazz acts to come and play on Wednesday, Thursday. Sometimes he'd keep on Friday and he would pick up these acts going from New York to Chicago. Cleveland was at midpoint. So he could get them fairly cheap, give them a couple nights at the Smiling Dog. So uh, Chick Corea, uh, Miles Davis, um, you know, Pearls Before Swine, you know, all, all these name acts. And one band that came through was Weather Report. So Weather Report set up, we had our sound system up. So we gave Weather Report the Braino treatment with echoes and quadraphonic. And at the end of the night, they go, who are these guys? Where'd they come from? And the, the club owner there, a fellow named Roger Baum, said, you should take one of these guys on the road with you because you're setting up your own gear. They know everything. And look at all this cool stuff. So Brian actually went on the road with Weather Report. This would be 1972, 73. Became their first road guy, the house sound mixing, et cetera, et cetera. About four years later, Weather Report now had made the, the record Heavy Weather. And so they had now become a national touring act. And the keyboard player at, at, with Weather Report, fellow named Joseph Zawinul, now had sort of a Rick Wakeman ensemble of synthesizers. It just wasn't one. There was a big setup. And so Brian said, hey, you want to come out on the road and do Joe's, Joe's keyboards. It's too much for me to handle besides the rest of the band. So the lineup at Weather Report at the time was uh, Joseph Zawinul on keyboards. Wayne Shorter was the saxophone player and he was, you know, heir apparent from Miles Davis and John Coltrane, that kind of stuff. The bass player was this fellow named Jocko Pastorius, who eventually became famous in his own right as the sort of the, the progenitor of the fretless electric bass. And he was genius in his own right. And then uh, several several drummers were at the time, but the, the guy who kind of stuck with it was Peter Erskine. So at that point, that got me from Cleveland to Los Angeles, being the road technician for Weather Report. And uh, I traveled the whole world with him. It was just great. And there was there was a whole education of improvisation because, you know, these guys play different every night. They have a, a framework they play on, but everybody does their thing in their solos. And it's, you know, they're they're doing jazz. Uh, so that 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 improvisation after four years of 
sitting through all that stuff really impinged on me on, on how I compose and make stuff up. So I, so I, so I can jam. I mean, I don't need to write anything down. I just can go for it. Uh, so that, I think that really flows into how I work now. Uh, mm. The technology really supports the idea that you can literally just turn the computer on, put it, put it on, and just start playing. You know, the idea of pencil and paper and, and doing all that stuff is not in my, my diet. You know, uh, I, I do it differently. From based on that. So, so yeah, the, the weather report got me to Los Angeles. And about 1979, through the oddest circumstances that would ever get you a career change, another friend of mine from Cleveland, a fellow named Pax Lemon, has now moved to Los Angeles, and he's working at Paramount Pictures. And this is the, uh, the roundabout way you ended up working in Star Trek, basically. Exactly. And that, that's what got me into Star Trek was he was working in a transfer bay, just making copies of tapes. And these two sound effects editors, uh, Richard Anderson and Stephen Flick, are having a conversation about how they needed somebody who knew about synthesizers for the movie. And then he turns around and goes, oh, man, you got to talk to my buddy Adam, man. Yeah, he works for Weather Report. He knows all about synthesizers. And they look at him like, Weather Report, is that the one at 7 o'clock or 11 o'clock? I mean, <laughs> Weather Report, the Weather Report, not the band. Uh, but nonetheless, they, you know, he explained, no, 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 and they got it. Gave him my number. I went down and took a meeting with them and uh, found out they were doing Star Trek, the motion picture. Well, that's exciting. How do we get started here? He says, well, can you make an audition tape? All right, so what would you like? He says, well, we got three, three little tests for you. One is to make the sound of the Starship Enterprise going from warp one to warp seven, which is a scene in the first movie where they have to do this big acceleration to get to where they need to go in a big hurry on an untested Star Trek. You know, the Enterprise has just been rebuilt it hasn't been shook out, but we're going to push the envelope. So my sound design thought was, well, you just can't go, it'll be over too fast. So I made sort of this undulating acceleration. And I dialed it all up on a Prophet 5 synthesizer, which actually, just as a side note, is this one down here. Oh, is right. that the original one you used? That's actually, it's been replaced since then, but it's that one. Uh, that synthesizer and there's a there's a there's a section called the polymod which which modulates some tones together uh, so it's not just an oscillator it's oscillators feeding oscillators feeding oscillators and it gave this tonality which i dialed up and said starship enterprise and i turned in that tape and that that sound effect that i made on the prophet 5 synthesizer actually became one of the core elements of the sound of the starship enterprise so, so your saw, test is what's basically what we're hearing in the final version yeah yeah so, so like I hit a home run, not knowing what I was doing and just, boop, and it worked. Uh, so then I sort of earned the, the chair of being the guy who had the sound of the Enterprise. And that, that meant that I was on Star Trek one, two, three, four, five, six of the motion pictures as the, the go-to guy that no matter what they were doing, you'd go to Alan and he would deal with the, the Starship Enterprise. And sort of all the extra space hardware, the bridge sounds, the transporters, phasers, lasers, other devices, you know, the, the space hardware. And the idea was this, you couldn't record this with a microphone. I mean, you, did, you know, this didn't exist in reality. So much like uh, all these things were optical effects, right? I mean, if you know what a, uh, a visual effects is, like ILM, Industrial Light Magic, they would... 
they would make special effects visually. I became the person who added the sounds to those special visual effects. So I became a sound effects specialist. In fact, my, my, my credit in those early movies is special sound effects. So there was already supervising sound effects editors, sound effects editors, Foley editors, ADR editors. So that somewhere to put me into a stack, I became a special sound effects creator. And at the time on that first Star Trek, uh, it wasn't just me, it was myself. There was another fellow, fellow named Frank Serafini and also Joel Goldsmith, who was Jerry Goldsmith's son and a fellow named Dirk Dalton, because the there's a whole story on that first Star Trek. Um, uh, you probably heard it before, but the visual effects list to be made well, originally went to a fellow named Robert Abel, who was a, a genius and was right, but it became clear early on that the he didn't have the bandwidth to crank out all those effects on the timeline that they had. They had actually scheduled a, a, a screening in on December 7th of that year for NASA, mm -hmm. and no one was going to say, we can't make it. So they went to John Dykstra's, they went to Doug Trumbull's, they put all these effects houses on 24-7, I don't care what it costs, we got to have it, emergency mode. So same with us as sound effects creators, we, a lot of stuff we didn't see it um, finished, we just saw bits and pieces. So the idea was, we'll figure it out when we get there. So there was like three sound effects creation teams, myself, Serafini, and the Goldsmith team, all making our own versions of whatever it was. And we got to the dub stage, when we finally saw what it was, the mixers would then sort of make, make a mix out of whatever the, all the elements are. So it didn't get, give them a, a broad palette of colors to make things out of. So that was sort of the, the way that one went down. It was, it was pretty wild. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, a, a short story on that. It was so crazy that the, the, on the, the screening was on December 7th. On December 6th, they were still mixing the final reel on the dub stage with the final visual effects being dropped in literally on the dub stage. And then that mag sound literally was, there was a guy from Dolby there like literally ready to catch the reel off the thing, run to the lab, shoot the optical, take that reel and get on a plane and fly overnight to get to the theater and the screening was already going in the theater and the last reel wasn't in the theater yet. And he literally ran in and popped it on the projector and play. And it was down to like, <laughs> it was a movie in itself to get the movie to screen that day. Seriously. So, so after that, no, there's nothing can go wrong. That freaks me out. We, that was the worst case scenario from the beginning. So, uh, I'm very stable in all these, who knows what, unstable situations. I digress. Anyway, so that, so that, that, put, Can I throw you a question at you real quick. Yeah, good. Okay. Um, so, you know, in this time period that we're talking about too, you know, right now, this is the era of post 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, Star Trek the motion pictures happening concurrent with Alien. Star Wars has just came out. And really, this is over 10 years, about more or less 10 years later than when Star Trek originally stopped airing on TV. So, you know, for you now as someone who's making the sound effects, making the design of the sound for the film, what is kind of like your thesis for how the ship, how, how sci-fi should sound in this time period that we're living in? I was just make it up as you go. I didn't have a philosophy. Uh, the tools created 
what what came out of the tools. All right, so so here's let's go back to why did this work for me? Because you know, I was a, a rocker. I loved synthesizers and equipment and tape recorders and stuff like that. So so the, the you know the the philosophy is success is opportunity meets preparedness. So I didn't know I was going to do this, but I was ready to do it when somebody said, "Could you do this?" The other part was. Being a visual artist, when you asked me to make sounds for images, I could do that. I could even do that better than I could write a three-minute hit song. So, so it was the the merging of multi multi talents into one thing and saying, "Hey, could you do this?" And I went, "Yeah, I could do that. And I could do that really good." So it, it kind of came together. So you know, that first Star Trek really changed my life and put me on a path that we're still doing it today. We're still talking about it. It became a career, uh, much more, much better than, you know, playing in a band and, and, and bars and living in the back of a van and living on beer and pretzels. Yeah. Well, one of the things that really stands out though, is the fact that it does feel like it's, you know, the same universe because obviously it is, but it does have a different tone. There's a different tonality to all the sound effects that we hear. I mean, the phasers are pretty similar, but they're not quite the same thing. The warp drive, like you said, it's your version of it. Uh, so, I guess what I want to kind of go on to there is how are you discovering what worked best for the film? Like, were you able to watch things before you did it or were you kind of working independently entirely of the filming process? Um, well, on the first one, a lot of it was to imagination. Mm-hmm. Imagine what this would be like. Later on, the, uh, you know, Star Trek 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, we saw more of what it was going to be. Uh, things were more on schedule. I actually have a shot of the Starship Enterprise flying by at what speed it was going to be at, uh, the length of the warp drive, you'd see it. So timings were were better uh, organized. And then also was able to integrate videotape. Whereas on the on the first one, I had no no picture. I'd go, I'd see it on a moviola. Um, actually, one thing I did is a little quick fix to get some timing off the thing is I'd go down there and with a little cassette recorder, I'd record the dialogue to a, a cassette recorder. So I at least had the sound and I knew how long the scene was because the dialogue would say, you know, warp one, Mr. Sulu, da 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 And the dialogue would at least be something that I could put up and use it as a, as a, a timer for how long the scene was and what did I need to do there. So I, I was doing, you know, synchronization was kind of loose in the beginning. Uh, but at a certain point, we could synchronize a videotape and the tape recorder and literally paint electronically hmm. so so that was you know the, the technology was coming so also know that that first star trek was one of the first uh dolby stereo films uh and, and we were pirating because before that movies were mono so so what was happening in the world of, of dolby and thx and Theater sound was being upgraded from mono to stereo to surround sound. So that was all enveloping around me providing special sound effect services. But then what else kept growing? You know, and here we are with, with you know, Dolby Atmos and uh, you know, 16, 20, 30, 60 speakers in the theater. And what can you do with that now? Mm. So I really, I've, I've taken the ride from the beginning to where we are today. So I, I think my experience level is I would get expert when it comes to that, you know, live the whole thing. So back to the, the sound design concepts is what we asked. What, what does this say? So certainly I listened to the, the transporter, the original transporter. 
that that was a foundation. It's going to still sound like the transporter, but this was the new improved with Levin and in, in, in stereo with more elements. Mm-hmm. So, so what you do in sound design uh, is you're making sound effects from a stack of sound effects. So it's a little of this and a little of this and a little of this, like a layer cake. And then some mix and blend of those becomes the new sound. The other thing that was an eye-opener for me was, again, a Mr. Synth and Mr. Tape Recorders, but the sound effects editors were asking for organic sounds. It couldn't just be electronic. It had to be real. So the tape recorder art was something that I ramped up on really fast because now we have digital samplers, but at the time, tape recorder was your real sounds. So I I had a, a... an analog, we call it a TAC, A-track, half-inch A-track tape, tape recorder with uh, some noise reduction on it. So it was a pretty good machine, and I had modified it for very speed. So I had on a knob the speed of the tape deck. Rather than being fixed, I could go you know, from, from 0 to 30 IPS in the speed of the tape recorder. So I could speed the deck up and down, and you could also put stuff on backwards and play with stuff backwards on the tape recorder. And that was your exploratory organic sound creation machine. And then I would then do stuff with that and record whatever happened there to another tape recorder on a fixed fixed tape so that that, that get, got captured, whatever you did with tape art. So there was a lot to speeding up and slowing down and very speeding, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, at one point I had the sound of the, Enter- the Enterprise on an 8-track where I had the original Star Trek, uh, original Prophet 5 audition sound the sound, an air conditioner sound they were called room 13 which was a this like a kind of organic room sound i would then vary vary the speed of the tape recorder for the acceleration and deceleration of the ship in eight tracks so then the eight tracks would then go to the dub stage so they could fool around with the blending of those those elements but i was i was basically sulu at the time but as as an audio designer and so I would watch the movie and fly the ship on this tape recorder and then give to the sound effects editors a track that was the right length with the right up and downs. Because, again, remember, they're just on a fixed machine, a movie all of that. It just plays whatever you put on it at a fixed speed. So all the, the manipulations had to be done before it got to the sound effects editors. So, so that was one of the roles I had, and I continued on with that uh, and you know, and, and then all the other space hardware, uh, like the bridge background, or sometimes the telemetry lights are blinking and stuff like that. So the idea of making things that were synchronous to the image was what I, I grew into and learned how to do all that stuff. Hmm. A lot of fun. A lot of fun. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, a Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. 
TFP also has a pay what you want section where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter Untold10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using Untold10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Hey, I'm Licia Naff, a.k.a. Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek TNG. And now, Captain Sonia Gomez on Lower Decks with her own ship, the Archimedes. Yay! I finally got a promotion after 25 years. So anyway, I'm here to talk about drivebydogooders.org. It's a little charity I run where we go to the outskirts of Skid Row, and from our car windows, we hand out basic human essentials like water, wipes, cold stream cheese, socks, tarps, masks, T-shirts, things to keep people warm. We just think that everyone deserves clean water, some protein, and a way to clean themselves, especially during corona. We also hand out masks to those who really, really need it, who live in tents on the street, mainly the disabled and elderly who have a really hard time getting to services. And we do all of this with no agenda, just pure giving, no overhead. If you'd like to go to the website and donate, it's 100% tax deductible. And if you click on the donate button, you can go right to the $35 option and pick a signed autograph picture of either the Star Trek The Next Generation or Lord X or... Total Recall, where I played the three-breasted mutant hooker on Mars, and uh, that's the X-rated version. Put in the comments section your address and anything you'd like me to write, and I'll personally inscribe it and mail it off to you immediately. And again, that's drivebydogooders.org. Ensign, I mean, Captain Sonia Gomez, signing off. So, Alan, I want to jump out of Trek for a little bit because I want to talk about some of your other work because there really is so much to your career, so much to your resume, and a lot of amazing stuff that you've done. So I want to keep kind of going chronologically here right now. And right after Star Trek, you basically hooked up with John Carpenter and began to work on some of his projects. So I'd love to hear the story about how you got into that and uh, some of the things that you did with John Carpenter. Sure. Well, Star Trek is in- integral to how I wound up meeting John Carpenter. The film editor from Star Trek, a fellow named Todd Ramsey, his next assignment was Escape from New York. And during Star Trek, uh, you know, this was my first movie. I was promoting myself to whoever. I was giving cassettes of my music and passing around. And, and Todd liked me and, you know, got along. And I, I delivered some stuff that he thought was pretty creative. So while he's now working on Escape from New York, uh, he's having interaction with John Carpenter. He's, you know, he's the director in, in the room with him editing. And uh, John had worked with some other some other studios, et cetera, et cetera. And, and Todd picked up that John might be... A, up for options, checking out his options. So he suggested to John Carpenter that he, you know, he should meet this guy, Alan. You know, you guys are like same age, and I, I think you guys might get along. So uh, John Carpenter came over to my little dining room studio where I'd done all the Star Trek work and sat with me for about three hours, and I played him music and sound effects, and we talked and philosophy. You know, he and I are the same age. He's from Kentucky. I was from Ohio at the time. We had a lot of the same bands and music similarities so at the end of the that particular meeting he looked at me and goes yeah let's do it so 
now I'm scoring with John Carpenter on Escape from New York as my next sort of big, big assignment. Now it worked out good. I had all the gear and I was the techno guy and the whole setup. John Carpenter really wasn't interested in the equipment. He was the filmmaker and the composer and knew everything he wanted. So it was the, the, the good relationship. He would literally come over to my house and we'd make his music. And, and at the time, that was before synchronization, same kind of thing. And we did have videotape. I could, we, could, we could play, literally push play on the tape recorder and the videotape and watch it run, but it was wild. It was not synchronized. So um, that first score was still needed to be transferred to tape. And then John went back to the, to the, the movieola and would cut the music in and do the little subtle timing changes. But uh, we, we just started, uh, you know, and um, that solidified a relationship that we went on from uh, Escape from New York. Then his next movie was The Thing. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting, we're finishing editing, uh, the last mixes from Escape from New York. And he says, you know, my next movie is The Thing. I'm going to be really busy on that. And they want to make another Halloween. Alan, you're going to have to do Halloween. I'm too busy. It was like just a handoff. Like, you take care of the. I'm too busy. You take care of Halloween. So he went off and did the the, the Thing shoot, which, uh, he, as he'll tell you, it, it nearly killed him. I mean, it was a very difficult shoot especially in uh, in uh, in british columbia in the snow in some really serious environmental issues with ice and snow etc cetera, etc cetera. a lot of challenges so he was that way and meanwhile i dealt with uh the scoring of halloween 2 and rick rosenthal and deborah hill was on board and they were partners so i dealt with deborah mainly on halloween 2 uh, and the idea was to use john's original Halloween one score as the foundation and then add to it. So basically Halloween two is Halloween one, John Carpenter with Alan Howarth dubbing more synths and textures and creating a little bit of extra music that, you know, the, the new movie needed some other music, but the main thing was just to create a new texture. So I sort of took it from his more simplistic piano and synth score to more of a Gothic beefier, dark synth wave uh, texture. Uh, then uh, at the end of the thing, uh, Ennio Marconi was the composer, but there was a couple couple supplementary cues that John wanted. So he came over for an afternoon and we created some, some sort of droney cues that wound up in the thing. It sort of sounded like Christine. Uh, then the... The chronology, I believe the next movie we did together was Halloween 3. So I remember him coming over back to the same studio in the dining room in Glendale, sitting down and said, uh, Alan, this is going to be really easy this time. We're just going to rip ourselves off, which was his way of saying, I love what we did on Escape. Let's just keep doing that. So we pulled out the latest Tangerine Dream record and listen to some stuff and then just jumped into Halloween three. And it's interesting on my personal Pandora Spotify list, the score from Halloween three is the most played. Really? Especially the opening uh, chase sequence. It just sort of hit the mark in synthesizers, sequential music. It's like one of those 
we got it right things. So interesting that 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 supersedes the movie. The movies, it's a good movie. Um, it was perceived not as a good movie because everybody wanted Michael Myers. It was a big departure, that's for sure. Yeah, and and the idea was John and Deborah felt that Halloween two was the end of Michael Myers. We killed the guy, so they were going to now do Halloween anthologies where they would do a Halloween story for Halloween and go to different places. And this was the first attempt. When it came out, the the feedback was, "What happened to Michael Myers?" Yeah. So then uh, John and Deborah said, "Okay, well, you know, producers, you you do what you want. Just send us our checks." So that sent them back off to Halloween uh, four, five, and six, which they actually approached me to do the score for. And I remember at the time, uh, John and I were doing the score from Big Trouble in Little China. And uh, they approached me, and uh, I literally asked John in the studio, I said, hey, they asked me if I want to do Halloween, you know, back, go back and do more Halloween sequels. And he goes, and do whatever you want. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm done with that stuff. So that was just, I, I needed his blessing, though. We were friends, he was my buddy, and I, I couldn't be, like, sneaking around him not knowing what's going on. That, that wouldn't have worked. Uh, in between, sorry, I, I, one thing I skipped over. So from Halloween 3, we also did Christine as a score, and then Big Trouble, then uh, after that, Prince of Darkness, and then They Live. Or I, might, I may have better than Maybe They Live in Prince of Darkness. I don't have my, my mind, which is right on that. So, but I, I believe They Live was the last score I did with him. Uh, and then John went into a, a long period of not making any movies. He had some time off, and I, I just continued on. But that was sort of that that period from, we started in 19, 1980, uh, Escape from New York, to 88 for They Live. And so... My, my career was John Carpenter and Star Trek were the two pillars of I was either doing one or the other and then filled in a whole bunch of other stuff in between. That's kind of the interesting thing, too, because you, you talk about filling in for other little things. But I mean, they're not little, Alan. They're they're pretty huge. A lot of stuff you've worked on. I mean, let's be real here. And I'm like, as I look through your resume and I was doing all my research for this interview, I was like, what do I ask this guy? Because he's done like every movie I love. So, you know, I, I do want to kind of poke around some other things here. And one of the ones that I really enjoy is RoboCop. And I know you were uh, the special sound effects designer for RoboCop 2. So um, I guess, again, it's like it's such a big, broad thing here. But I'd love to hear maybe you can give me any insight into the sound of RoboCop himself. Because I've always loved that, like, iconic sound of his body moving around. Like, was that something that you were working on in that film? Yeah, yeah. I, I jumped in on RoboCop 2 for the RoboCop footsteps, right? So so it's not just the, the impact of the the bottom of whatever we'll call the shoe to the thing, there's going to be a mechanism that goes with it. <laughs> so the, so working with little servos and, and little, the mechanism part of it was, was important uh, sound design element to that. I was working directly with the sound effects editor, Stephen Flick, who again, remember Stephen Flick was the first Star Trek guy. So, so Steve Flick and Richard Anderson were the two guys that kept, calling me back to create more sound effects for them on the shows that they, their careers took them through. And then there was another fellow that also emerged, uh, a fellow named Mike, Mark Mangini, who was on the first Star Trek as the di- assistant dialogue editor. And he, he became part of the three of them were the, the main sound of sound supervisors for all that 80s stuff that I did with those guys. 
So, you know, um, Mangini was the supervising sound effects editor on Star Trek IV. You know, so he, he was back in. So these, these were all my buddies. You know, we were, we were just guys. It was, there wasn't a big Hollywood scene to it. It was, we're guys that work together and you get called on the next show because we got called on the next show. It wasn't like agents and uh, my people will call your people and all that stuff. That was not part of the, the scene. And then also you'd meet other people that, you know, from that first Star Trek, uh, it was uh, George Waters and Cecilia Hall who went on to do Top Gun uh, and all that stuff. And then uh, Alan Murray went on and he went on to do uh, you know, all the Clint Eastwood stuff. Uh, you know, so all these, so it was fine. It was interesting that first Star Trek became a gathering of what would be the emergent talent that would then blossom into the major, the major players for another decade worth of, of and beyond sound effects work. It's interesting hearing about this community of all these sound designers and basically how, you know, it, it is very less pretentious than a lot of other parts of Hollywood. And uh, I wonder how much of that is also just because a lot of Hollywood doesn't understand what you guys do. And I think that's might be still a thing that's happening in today's industry as well. Uh, and even just for audiences, I, I feel like, Today's modern audience kind of appreciates a lot more of what sound design is. But, uh, you know, from my perspective, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. It feels like in 70s, 80s, maybe into the 90s, sound design just wasn't really understood and definitely not appreciated by audiences in the same way. Because really what you guys do is you make the movie sound great. And that's it sounds like a simple thing to say, but there's so much to that. There's so many layers to what you do and how involved the sound design is to sucking a person into a film. Uh, so, I mean, I, I'd love to hear a little bit about... I guess sound design as a whole and the community you guys have in it, because you guys really are integral to making a movie successful. Yeah, well, the you know, let's let's just talk about the making of a film. Uh, there's pre-production, which is the script and the planning and and every the financing and the hiring of the actors and the casting, all this stuff. Then you do into production, which is you actually make the film the movie. Then you go into post-production. So now the movie's been shot, it's in editing. You're, you're now going to visual effects, things you couldn't film on the set that needed to be supplemented, and you go into the music and the sound and the dialogue. So in the sound of soundtrack, dialogue, music, and sound effects. And then in the world of sound effects, there's another three subset, which is what we call the hard effects, which is car crashes and explosions and whatever, you know, things you see that are there. Then there's backgrounds, which is things you don't really pay attention to, but if they're not there, you'd certainly miss them, whether it's traffic or air conditioning or birds or whatever that, that just kind of run to keep the keep the set alive. And then, and then there's all this idea of supplementary sound effects, stuff that you've added to the track from libraries of things. And, and that's sort of where I fall into it. And also, and that is called Foley effects. So people considered me Foley initially because that was part of that that add-on bag. Uh, you know, a lot of times a Foley state is a recording studio you would go in and you would record footsteps or picking up cups and and or, or clanking things or you know they got all these really great little techniques. They, they'll take a piece of silk and and wiggle silk and call that a candle, a flicker of a candle. You know, and and the little. Candle makes no sound, but you add that, add drama to the burning of the candles in the scene. And there's all kinds of wonderful little techniques of sound effects creation that comes into it. The point being, if you were, if you were building a house, the foundation was pre-production. Production was 
framing and building and putting the walls in. And now post-production is now installing all the fixtures, the windows, the doors, et cetera, et cetera. And sort of my world of sound design is like the finished carpenter. Finally, the last molding and the really the stuff to make it pretty and really attractive gets to be that part of it. So I'm, we're at the very end of the process for the most part. And, and so, that, so that's the procedure for somebody to understand it. Now, the sound tracks become more sophisticated, the technology becomes more sophisticated, and the size of the staff actually got bigger and then smaller based on the sound, on, on the technology. So in the 80s, having 20 people on the track, on, on the sound effects teams was not unheard of because we were all running in parallel. These guys were doing the backgrounds. These guys were doing the hard effects. These guys were doing the Foley. These guys were cutting the dialogue. These guys were dealing with the what we call ADR, the replacement dialogue. So you know, besides the set, the sound that was recorded on the on, of the actor on the set now went into a studio to replace lines or add more lines, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that all was on a timeline that it was too much for any one person to do. So you just had to go wide on it. Now with the technology, that can come back down to like six to 10 people because the technology manages so much of this now, the mechanics of it. So one person can be more of a, uh, a controller as opposed to a doer. And, and you have an assistant to kind of load and unload stuff like that, but you, you kind of more, a lot of more hand waving and instead of actually button pushing it, that, that needs to be done to do this stuff. And even with the mixing, uh, the, the sound effects submissions from a moviola are all at the same volume. Their, their maximum volume is as it can to beat the signal to noise ratio of the tape. But now with the digital being so good, I literally submit my work at the volume it wants to be at for the mix. So literally they can set the fader straight across and hear the scene basically already mixed and do slight variations, but they don't have to go and really do a lot of work to sort through my work to make it finished. So, so again, the, the technology allows us to, to, to add our, as we're making it, uh, judgment, judgment calls and technology. So that's all, that's all changed over time. Uh, and then also, just media in general, you never, you never knew who a sound effects editor was, you know, and then you get to Star Wars and you finally find out that there's a guy named Ben Burton who basically created the entire ambiance and made all the choices for why Star Trek, Star, Star Wars sounds that way. And he's George Lucas's right hand guy and he's been there the whole time. And, you know, he, he was super creative in making sound effects choices that were imaginative like um, he was he was a uh, he worked on a movie called death race 2000 for george lucas and he was the first guy that thought of besides having a, a car go rum, rum, vroom, to put a lion in there and have the car go that kind of comes back to what you were saying earlier too about the organic sounds being part of this industrial sound too. Exactly. And, and as it turns out, Richard Anderson and Ben Burt were both 
students at USC. So they were a subset of that. That a very special class. Student, student class of guys that had the ideas that all knew each other. In fact, that's, that's how I wound up working on the crew from Raiders because Ben Burt was too busy. So he called up Richard Anderson and put the Slick and Anderson on Raiders to do it because he was didn't have the bandwidth and it was his buddies and they were my buddies and we got the call and we did all this stuff. And that's just how it worked. And uh, yeah, so, so recognition is there. And I mean, I remember, you know, motion picture sound editors was a little, uh, a little club and we had a little banquet and now they rent a big hall and it's 800 people show up and they got all kinds of trophies and it's a big deal and it's on the internet. And I don't want to say it's as big as the Oscars, but it's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> But that's okay. That's called growth. That's good. Yeah, growth is good. And by the way, Alan, I'm so happy that you brought up Raiders because I wanted to ask you a little bit about Raiders. I'm trying to figure out the most iconic sound to talk to you about today. And I feel like Raiders has one of those sounds. And that's Indiana Jones's whip. So uh, I'd love to hear if you don't mind a little bit of, of background about what you did, some of the work you did on Raiders and also the whip itself, because that noise that Indiana Jones makes me cracks that whip. I feel like that's now such an iconic thing more than any other character who's had a whip in a movie because there's plenty of movies that have them, but nobody's Indiana Jones except for Indiana Jones. All right, so the whip is actually, I'd say that's in Stephen Flick's camp. Okay. And I, I do believe he did, went to a Foley stage and whipped and whipped. Crack that whip. Get that going. Uh, Flick invited me to be on Raiders in the Well of Souls scene. Hmm. So that, that was my main contribution. So I was involved in making the sound of the statue falling and all the, the break up there, and that was literally in my dining room again, breaking bricks with hammers and crap like that, and then slowing the tapes down. So, you know, instead of like crack, it went, so a lot of slowing down tape was a lot of way to make bigger sounds out of smaller things. Uh, Then also was the snakes. I got involved in making the sound of the snakes. And that was actually pulling masking tape off of glass going, so that became the, the slit, part of the slither element. Uh, and then, interestingly enough, I also got involved in the mummies. So the, sound, the voices of the mummies, uh, when, when Marion pulls down that first mummy, that's actually me screaming. <laughs> so that, that, was, that was my uh, a technique I got from Pink Floyd, Roger, Roger Waters, careful with that Axe Eugene, where Roger Waters does an inhale scream. Instead of screaming out, you go, ah! So that was, that was me as the actor for the, the, that scene. That, that scene is where I was focused. Otherwise, you know, I was just a small vendor for Raiders. But I was there, and yeah. because of my buddies, I got to do it. And, and apologies to headphone users. Alan just killed all of your ears. Uh, send your <laughs> medical bills to Alan Howarth at the following address. Uh, <laughs> Hey, everybody. We'll get right back to the interview in one second, but I wanted to remind you all to check out Trek Untold over at Patreon. Patreon is the best way to directly support creators of things you like through a monthly subscription of an amount that you can choose. Trek Untold has a few different tiers already with different benefits, ranging from early access to episodes, the ability to ask a future guest questions, exclusive merchandise, and other bonuses that I'd love to offer. But first, I need to grow that Patreon community to do that. Trek Untold has been around since mid-2020 and has grown a ton since then, thanks to listeners and viewers like you. Through a platform like Patreon, you can help me keep improving the quality of each episode and keep bringing you new interviews with folks that make the Star Trek universe what it is. 
If this community can grow more over on Patreon, I can offer new perks like watch parties, exclusive Trek Untold episodes, being able to directly interact with guests, and other things, but in order to do that, I need to know my audience wants these things. The best way to tell me what you want is by supporting us on Patreon, so please check us out at patreon.com slash trekuntold today and become a bigger part of the Trek Untold family. And now, back to the interview. But, you know, there's one last thing I want to talk about, too, before we get to Trek. And again, there's realistically many, many more things I'd love to talk about, but I don't want to keep you here all day. But I do want to ask you about Poltergeist. And I was intrigued about hearing some of the stories that you said about doing Carol Ann's voice in the television scene. Oh, uh, yeah. So talk to me a little, a little bit about that scene and some of the challenges you had to work with on Poltergeist. So no, that, that was a good thing. Back to the same guys, Flick, Anderson, Mangini, we're all sitting in a spotting session. So as the sound effects editors, you sit with the director and the, the film editor and you're you're, you're making your list of your to-dos, you know, sort of the spec. And so we're sitting in a session. I got Steven Spielberg, Frank Marshall, and uh, Michael Kahn, who's the picture editor, in a room with us. And we're going through the movie. And they know that my job is special sound effects, all right? So as opposed to this and this and this, if you have to make something, I kind of, tension goes over to Alan and talk to him about that. So we come to the scene where Caroline is no longer in the scene, but we're going to hear her voice from another dimension. So I, and this is like icon, me and Steven Spielberg. Well, Steven, what, what do you think you want in the voice? So this is like talking to the Pope. I mean, you know, the guy. And he goes, uh, I think Earth to Venus. Oh, great. Earth to Venus. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you. I write down Earth to Venus, a piece of paper. I have no idea what he means. Ah! So, I, you know, we finished the session. I got in the hall, and I just start to sweat. Like, if I don't get this right, I'll never work in this town again. This is like, I've been handed the baton to deliver to Steven Spielberg, Earth to Venus. And I have no idea what he wants. So I go back to the studio, and this is, remember, this is before digital I think at the time I might have had a, a thing called an Eventide 949 harmonizer. So it was a little pitch changer, but it sounded digital. It wasn't organic. It sounded electronic. So I tried that and it wasn't doing what I needed to do. And I'm just kind of stuck and I'm trying stuff and nothing's working. And it's, it's like a week or two into it. And, you know, the, the guys are going, how's it going, Alan? And I'm, going, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. So uh, part of the routine was to make tapes and then drive into into Paramount to deliver my quarter-inch tapes for, for the transfer bay to give it to the guys, and I was making other sound effects for stuff. And on the radio comes a whole lot of love, Led Zeppelin tune. And in the, in the second part of the song, it has two breakdown points where it goes from the to a sort of a, what we'll call a psychedelic or a breakdown. And on, on Robert Plant's voice, there was a pre-echo. So you would hear, you need, you need my love, my love. And I went, ah, ah, ah. Earth to Venus, that's it, that's it. That's what he wants. For me, it was the idea that him saying Earth to Venus was he wanted to hear it coming from a distance, another dimension, and arriving in the room with us. So that was the inspiration. And actually, I talked to... Uh, Al Schmidt, who was the engineer on the Led Zeppelin session, at first I thought it was a thing called print-through, which, which, which is a, a technical problem with analog tape that if, 
if you print a sound with a lot of magnetism and then it wraps around to the next wrap a little bit prints through to the next layer that makes these echoes and i thought it was a print through accident but i actually talked to him about this so i told him this story he goes oh no no that was that was headphone bleed so it turned out that when robert plant was singing there was another take playing on headphones on the floor and it leaked into the take and they liked it and kept it so it was a total accident on led zeppelin's part but that inspired me for earth to venus so now i go back to the studio i take the sound of the little girl's voice caroline's voice i put it on this a-track machine remember that i had to make the sound effects on i put it on backwards and i played into reverb as a backwards sound so instead of mommy it's going, no into reverb i record that with the varying the speed of the tape recorder so the reverb is not just straight reverb it's going as it goes through and i do two passes one for the left channel one for the right channel another pass turned around the other way for the surround channel because this is in quadraphonic so we want the sound to warbly come into two dimensions actually be the sound in the center channel to hear whatever she's got to say and then dump into the surround so it flies through and that was became the sound design and that's what you hear in the movie but whew, i had no idea what i was going to do till i did it it was just uh pioneering as they say now the interesting anecdote is that that particular solution i hear over and over again in modern film even in the, the most recent star wars where Ren and um, the other character are doing telepathic mind communications, it's the same effect. <laughs> that is how you do interdimensional voices. That just just became, oh, do that. That's what. It, that's so you're the so you're the pioneer of interdimensional voices. That should be on your resume somewhere. <laughs> well, it, it, uh, you know, I had to do it, and thank you, Led Zeppelin. <laughs> Well, Alan, let's let's beam back into some Star Trek stuff right now because I'd like to know how involved all the different directors were in working with you on those Star Trek films because those films are directed by you know you got Robert Wise doing the first one, you got Nicholas Meyer doing two and six, you got Shatner, you got Nimoy. It's a pretty bunch of very different people, and I'm curious to know how involved each of them was in the process of what you were doing if they were involved in what you were doing. Well, in the first one, virtually zero. His attention was on the visual effects uh dilemma during post-production so he was busy at trumbles and dykstras and, and robert abels and trying to approve that stuff and manage all those relations so the sound effects supervisors flick anderson cc hall george waters were the people that i was in contact with and so if there was any interaction between robert wise and the sound team it was to the sound effects editors and then i was a subset of whatever they were told from those guys I made stuff. Star Trek II, a lot of the same players. Uh, and I remember working with CeCe Hall a lot because she also had good communication with the director and also um, the head of post-production at Paramount. So there was a chain of command where she was a good communicator with that. A couple of times I did sit with, with uh, Myers and James Honer. Because James Honer was my buddy from Battle Beyond the Stars. So, so he shows up, you know, back to buddies again. You know, 
you know, agencies. And he's from another movie. He's on Star Trek too. I'm on Star Trek too, and we know each other. So there was a, a, a dialogue that was struck that actually was, I think, a really helped because at the time, music would work on music, sound effects would work on sound effects, on sound effects, and the only time those things would ever be put together to see how it works would be at the dub stage. And so the idea of the sound effects people talking to the music people didn't happen. But because it was my buddy, I could call up, hey, James, what are you doing in this scene? So there was some discussion about, hey, let's think about this scene because there's going to be a lot of low frequency in the sound effects. Why don't you not do double basses there? Why don't you go cellos and above? So there's room in the track for the low frequencies. And there was some cooperation there. There was actually some some pre-planning as far as the track and what we would wind up on the dub stage, as opposed to one of them had to get dumped because it wasn't working or had to get EQ'd out or something like that. So that, that was the beginnings of stuff like that. And Star Trek three, we definitely did it with the exploding planet. Uh, so some, some interaction, Star Trek three, again, more of a subset of the, the, the sound effects editors. And that was, that was that Ro Rosenman? No, Rosenman was on four. Uh, with the composer yeah yeah it was still, still honer was back in on three again and the director of star trek three i don't have any interaction with him at all okay, so that, that would have been leonard nimoy so nothing with, with nothing with nimoy not on not on three okay again there's some dynamics in here of working with Nimoy. so the more important people want to keep their relationships direct and I want to put a lot of other people behind them in front of those people. However, when it came to Star Trek Four, Nimoy was directing again, and I was actually put in front of Nimoy early on to create the sound effect of the whales communication, the giant space log that's coming in. Remember, it's doing a broadcast, and who is on the on the headset hearing this broadcast, saying there's a you know a, th a transmission coming in. We don't know what this is. But Nimoy wanted definitely that transmission to be built on whale sound. Ralph Winters, one of the producers, brought Nimoy out to, the, out to my studio for a meeting to discuss because he actually wanted to play the sound effect on the set to have the actors react to, hmm. which was very unusual. That was outside of the norm. So I remember jumping into doing whale research, whale sound effects research, uh, before, the, before the shoot. So this is, you know, like an odd odd thing and so they gave me the number of fellow named roger payne roger payne was the man who created a, a, a very famous record in the 60s called the song of the humpback whales and it was an lp so it was recordings of whale songs hmm. so i get to get on the phone with roger roger payne and i get hey this is alan howarth i work with star trek um roger uh like to share with you know the, have a conversation with you about whale songs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what do you got? And he goes, Alan, it's a sad story. What? He says, the whales don't sing like that anymore. What? He says, the noise pollution in the ocean from 60s to now has become significantly more. So the, the, the seas were quieter then. So the song of the, the big bull whale would carry for hundreds of miles. And the other herds would learn the song. 
So the indigenous centuries-old songs are in those 60s recordings. But when you listen to a whale today, they're singing. I'm not going to say they're not singing. They're doing new music. Hmm. But if you really wanted to talk about the iconic whale songs, it's those those recordings. Use those. Which was like, wow, that was a that was a reveal. <laughs> so he just steered me into just use the old just use that record. So I I now take the Sunpack Whale sounds and I and at this point this is like um I have an emulator two keyboard which is got a, like 17 seconds of digital sampling in it. So it's, it's, it's coming around now, you know, tape, instead of the tape recorders, I got a keyboard that'll do it. So I take the sounds of the humpback whales and I'm, because I'm going to be speeding them up, I put it into the keyboard at the lowest note on the keyboard, knowing that I'm going to speed the whole thing up several octaves. So that, you know, then they go, is the whale sound. You speed it up and go, I'm going, this sounds like birds. Mm -hmm. Hmm. What if I put birds in here? So I put birds at the highest note of the keyboard and I slow it down. And it sounds like whales. I have this, this God moment. Like, there really is a creator. There really is a supreme intelligence that designed this third dimension experience and it's just been revealed to me in having the same songs from these two different species and in many ways whales are the birds of the sea and birds are the whales of the air it's all connected and it was like it was a moment. It was a huge moment. Mm -hmm. and, and I share this story when I do the Star Trek conventions because it was really is, it's amazing. But the speed up whale things, we gave that to play on the set, which they did. Eventually, Mark Mangini came in and needed another version because it's, you know, it all matured and went on. But that was, that was a, a direct Nimoy moment, as you say. Mm -hmm. uh, Star Trek V, now William Shatner's the director. So Harv Bennett, the, the producer, actually brings, uh, Shatner over to the studio. We want to talk about what do you want, Bill? Bill wants to be really imagined. He wants to do something different. I mean, he he went so far as to say to Jerry Goldsmith, why don't you do the whole score with voices and don't use an orchestra? <laughs> okay. I can see Jerry rolling his eyes on that one. Good luck with that, Bill. Yeah, exactly. Good luck. And it was kind of the same experience we were talking about how, and if you remember in Star Trek V, we're going to literally go see God, right? We're going to go to someplace where whoever's running the show is on the other side of where we can't go, and we're going to see that. So we were talking about God sounds and voices. And, and Shatner had a lot of great ideas, but they were sort of like film school 101. They, they weren't practical. So I remember walking out of the, leaving the session and, and you know, I'm impressed, and it's Shatner, and I'm thrilled to be in the room with him. Uh, and then Harv says, whatever he told you, tell me what you're going to do, if you can do anything with what he told you. You know, like, this is not gospel. We're, give, we're letting him be the director. He'll do what he wants, but we still need to make this movie. So, you know, keep, keep track of what you got here. And then uh, Star Trek VI, 
That was Nimoy again, right? Uh, that was Nicholas Meyer. Nicholas Meyer's back. Okay, so Nicholas Meyer's back. So again, similar structure where George Waters and C.C. Hall are the principal sound effects editors, so they're communicating with him, and I'm hearing as a subset. I'm not really seeing him a lot. I'm, I'm a, a, a vendor supplying effects and kind of getting feedback through those guys. So there's another pretty iconic sound also in that very first Star Trek, the motion picture, and that would be the sound of V'ger. And I'd love to hear any stories about that because that's just got such a unique sound quality to it. Yeah, no, there was um, there was a really great challenge to try to create something original uh, in the, the last scene when finally Ilea and, and, and the, the gang get to meet V'ger for the first time. And so there's this, this big approach to before we see V'ger in this space with the lightning coming down. And we didn't want it to be lightning that we know. It wanted to be different. And so back to the studio, trying to figure out what can I do with this stuff. My setup at the time, I had a pedal steel guitar and a Moog vocoder. So I took the output of the Moog, of, of the pedal steel, fed it into the vocoder with white noise on one side. So there was like... So I had the, you know, the full bandwidth of a sound, but then the exciter part was the pedal steel guitar, and I with the pedal steel guitar started literally with a with, with the, the you know the, the the steel bullet that you take the thing and started banging and swiping up. doing that kind of stuff on the pedal steel through the vocoder, and it just made this amazing effect that became the V'ger lightning from stuff. And, and again, that it drops into the Paramount lightning and it's, a, it's a favorite and I still hear it decades later being used for alternate electronic spark sound effects things, but it was just another rock and roll moment of coming up with something original because what does that sound like? You know, Make me that. Yeah, it's so fascinating, just the journey from finding the sound effect to making it the final product. It's such a cool thing to do. Yeah, and, and that's what I like. I mean, my personality is I love pioneering. I mean, once it's kind of all the book is written and you know how to do it and there's a manual, I'm looking for the next thing. I'm done. Yeah. So, you know, going back to your uh, your Poltergeist moment, your Earth to Venus moment, I'm wondering if there was any of that for you during any of your work on the Star Trek series. Probably the biggest thing was the idea of this, this organic sound thing we talked about earlier, you know, being a music guy and a synth guy and dealing with music only, opening the window to what things really sound like. I mean, like in music, I would never think of the idea of just cutting a sound off like, hmm. why would you do that? You know, it would have a tail on it. But in a picture, there's a picture cut. So you would literally slice it off because the picture stopped there. Things like that were like a reveal. Then the idea of what does a warehouse sound like? An ambience. So I literally was able to schedule through NASA 
a tour of NASA facilities to record ambiences of NASA. So one of the one of the stops was the uh, the aircraft manufacturer facility at Burbank Airport, where they were making the the sub chasers, and the recording the the big warehouses and the air conditioners and the, the manufacturing places and the riveting and and experiencing sound in real organic sound in big spaces and, and creating a vocabulary for what did these sound these sound like and what did it mean. Uh, that was the beginning. Then I actually was able to go to JPL, Jet Propulsion Labs, in Pasadena and do field recordings there. And they had some pretty amazing stuff. They had uh, vacuum chambers where they would actually, it was a 70-foot vacuum chamber, and it had this big vacuum air door that would close to seal this chamber where they would be able to put equipment in there, suck all the air out like it was in space. The mechanism was this giant space door, which I recorded that, and that's in every Star Trek from then on as a big uh, pneumatic door kind of thing. Uh, so that I got from there. I also got the NASA control room for satellites recorded. Uh, then there was also uh, the, the, the ambience of all the computer rooms. So back in their server room, remember this is 1982, so having, it's not like you could go anywhere you want now, but this was all the high-tech stuff. So just the, the little fans and the beeps and the hard drives and all that stuff, having those kind of textures to now integrate organically was a, another sound effects lesson. And then the, the big one for me was I got to go to the Rye Canyon secret lab where all the hypersonic... Um, aircraft testing facilities were. And so that was so secret that I wasn't allowed to see it, but I was able to put my tape recorder in the hallway and give the microphone to one of the guys to take it in and run it and record it. Uh, and so that was places where they had, where they would put um, models of, of jets and all this other stuff. And that's where they developed the SR-71 Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And and they would run the the uh, the wind tunnels, mm. in this case the jet tunnels, and have all those kinds of sounds. So I began to get this palette of really interesting space, real space hardware to use as part of the palette of building things for Star Trek. So that was that was pretty good. And then also I went I went to the Lockheed Martin sound effects library. And they gave me a free run in there. So the uh, field recordings of those guys, wherever they went, was done. And I remember there's, there's one in there. There was an F-104 jet flyover, which I used forever. And somehow the guy was in the field and the jet went past and full tilt. And that's the... <laughs> You're here in Star Trek forever, and that's, that was from that, that, that Lockheed Martin sound effects library that they they shared. So yeah, I recognize it, that noise even just by hearing you do it. I recognize that noise instantly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's so classic. And so it wasn't a modern jet; it was an older jet that was noisier. Because now <laughs> modern jets are made to be quieter and quieter and quieter, and they do do this stuff. But to be a sound effect, it was 
It was from those days or something from the, well, I'll imagine the sixties or something like that. It was really a, a chance to explore film sound in a great way and sort of have the credentials to get to places that you wouldn't normally get to. That's pretty astounding. Some of the access you had just because of Star Trek, just because really the film industry in general, what you've been able to do and accomplish and places you got to go. Uh, but bringing it back to Star Trek real quick, one last time here, you know, you got to work on all six of the original series films. If you had to pick a favorite, which one would it be? Which one is one you were most proud of? Let's say. Oh, Rathacon. And, and for sure, because the, the chaos of Trek one was down to now we could really focus and get, get it right. So we established so much of, of on Rathacon, get it right. That, that got recycled, uh, Several times. The other one is Star Trek Six. Actually, hmm. by then I had a thing called a Synclavier system. So that was the really big dog digital sampler keyboard. And I had a, back to a Satori or a, a reveal moment. Uh, I had never thought about this until I got to a digital editor. I was working on making the sound of the Enterprise flying over. And in that scene, there's this big, gorgeous, long flyover. You know, it's not just a, a it's like going to last for four or five seconds. And so having a big, long, powerful pass by, I need to create that. How am I going to do this? And for whatever reason, I I had the idea of taking explosions, putting putting them backwards, back to you know reverse sounds again, taking a sound in reverse and splicing it onto the head of the sound going forward, and that was the great sound design creation. Oh my God, this is how you do it thing that you can make a pass by of anything. So in this case, the explosion went. Right, so the, the explosive part was masked by the fact that it peaked and went again. So it wasn't a, a bang. It ramped into it and went out. But from then on, you could make a pass by of anything. You could make it out of anything, anything with an impact. You make it out of forks dropping. I mean, you could make it out of bullets. You could make it out of. Out of sneezes. I mean, you could make a pass by out of anything. That that was a technique, and I, you know, I I did articles and told, you know, talked about this back in the days, and now everybody uses that. That's just one of those back to one of those uh, discovery moments of well, that's how you do it. Mm-hmm. So that that was the, the the big moment, and that that I discovered that for Star Trek Six. From then on, that was that was it. That's how you do it. So, Alan, looking back at your prolific career of all the many, many, many iconic works that you've done, what do you think is the most iconic sound effect that you ever created for any of the films you've worked on? Um, actually, it was, uh, it was identified as the greatest sound effect of all time by my colleague, Frank Serafini. And it is this pass-by effect we talked about for using the reverse explosion passed by sound effect. There is a, um, a sound effect CD in the, the Sound Ideas General Library uh, called Alan Howard 6040, and the sound effect is in there. And it is the 
effect, which I hear everywhere, forever, in eternity. In fact, it's so popular that I can't use it myself anymore because I've used it a couple of times and people say, I've heard that thing before. Give me something else. Like it's his sound effect for crying out loud. <laughs> I made it. Doesn't matter. I heard it before. You hear it in Laura Ingram. You hear it in in you know news stuff. You hear it. It works for so many different things. You know, and and it's generic. It doesn't sound like a spaceship. It's just a an energy build and release. The big old whoosh. Yeah, the big the the, the space whoosh is called. Yeah. So again, looking at your entire career, not just Star Trek, uh, what would you say was the most challenging job that you did that was the most rewarding? Well, certainly we talked about the poltergeist. That was that was a big win uh, with a major challenge in front of you know the top of the industry. That was a big one. The other one that we really did a good job on was the Hunt for Red October, and so the the team actually got the Academy Award for the best sound effects that year. And the idea of making a silent drive and what does a silent drive sound like uh, was, you know, it's movie time, right? It can't be silent. It's got to make some, make some effects. And that had a, a ton of variations. Eventually, um, it, it was sort of this pounding sound made with a pile driver slowed down. And then it also, and in the movie, there's some, some dialogue where the guy in the headset says, it sounds sort of like whales, so it had to have a little organic effect. So, so it's like, a little whale, that, you know, back to the layer cake thing. And then the other was the sound of the, uh, the sonar. The funny story there, the, we actually had two guys that were real submarine guys that were put on the movie as advisors and they were to help us get the sound effects, you know, yeah. right. But they were also there to make sure that we weren't too right. So occasionally they'd go, eh, I wouldn't use that one. We don't want a third world training film for Los Angeles class submarines. Don't use that one. So the, the sonars, modern sonars are very high frequencies. They're not, whoo, they're like because the higher the frequency the faster the response but we had to cheat and use sort of world war ii sonar effects but i i went through like a hundred versions of a beep with a response before we finally got to the one that became the one <laughs> that sounds like the most annoying job too just the constant beeping noise you have to hear while you're doing all that yeah i mean it's just uh, how about this well how about that how about this Turning it batches. Well, that one's closer, and it was, uh, and it was also by committee. Which you know, if anybody does commercials, they know this thing. All you want is one person to say yes or no, but when six people have to say yes or no, and then the seventh person has to collect those yes and nos and finally go back to the first six and go, okay, out of all those ones, here's the one we're going to use and take responsibility for it to the client. <laughs> what is the most memorable piece of advice you ever received from someone that you still think about and still use today? I don't know exactly who said this to me, but I know that it stuck with me. Never give up. That's it. Nice and simple. Good quote. Good words to live by. Yeah. No, uh, 
And, and the summary is, uh, the minute you give up, you lose. You instantly lose if you give up. It's better to die trying than to give up. And then, and the other one I have, my father-in-law, his favorite favorite frame phrase was, get her done. And last thing for today, Alan, what's the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Oh, to be part of this huge, iconic, franchise is the wrong word. What would you call it? You should go it, the universe. <laughs> yeah, the universe. Can I tell you a short story? Sure. All right. This 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 is this is very real. Later on, after doing the Star Trek in the uh, in the eighties, see about ninety one, ninety two, I was given a book written by a man named Wesley H. Bateman. The book was written on analyzing the Great Pyramid of Giza mathematically looking for the units of measure of the original architect called the rods of Amun-Ra. And his postulate was that whoever designed that building had extremely advanced knowledge, almost to the point of universal knowledge, things that were true not only here on Earth, but maybe elsewhere. I became buddies. We had this whole, I got a whole project of, of those measurements eventually led to frequencies of music, and I have this whole thing of, of identifying the acoustics of, of natural sound and nature, and I have a project called Natural Resonance, which I'm still involved in. But eventually, I was in his, in his living room, and there was these pictures of him and his wife and his daughter in Star Trek uniforms. I went, Wes, what's that all about? I was, oh... He didn't want to make a big deal out of it. He wanted to downplay it. But in the 60s, he used to give free lectures in Silver Lake in Los Angeles. And he had a thing called the Mind Institute, the Mental Investigations of New Dimensions. And he claimed he was an authentic Federation telepath. And he was connected to the real Star Trek. And the attendees to his lectures was Gene Roddenberry and company. <laughs> and he was the source of the Prime Directive, the United Federation of Planets, the, the whole Star Trek Foundation lore was this guy. Star Trek is real. Well, that is a hot take, sir. <laughs> No, I'm telling you. I could tell you another story if you're really ready for the for the clincher. No, no, go for it. All right, so I, you know, like anybody, oh, that's great, yeah, cool. So he he left Los Angeles when the whole UFO community thing got really heated up, and this was right around the assassination of Robert Kennedy, and he didn't want to get caught up into being a weirdo and all this other stuff. Went out, wrote the book, et cetera, et cetera. So he's living in the high desert. This is, for me, it'd be about 97, 98. We become bodies. I'm in all the frequencies and the pyramids, all this stuff. I'm out, out in his trailer out in the desert. And he's sitting in his in his armchair going, Fatu, Parado, Nectu. 
Wes, what are you doing? He says, I'm contacting one of the pilots over at the Death Valley base, asking if they'll fly over the house for you tonight. Ooh, this is getting pretty cool. Later that evening, we're out in the backyard. She's telepathically communicating. And he says they have to get, because of the prime directive, they have to, they have a, a, a gauge, they have to get a white light, which means what they're going to do is not going to interfere with man. But there's, you know, things he can do, it's not going to make any difference, right? But landing on the White House lawn would not get a white light right now. Okay. So it, finally he gets the white light, the, the pilot. So he, he's not, he's not looking up, he's down, and he says, okay, look now. And I look up. And there's these two lights, kind of at uh, 1,500 feet or something like that, and they fly over, two of them in parallel. He says, okay, watch what happens. They circle around and fly over again, and this time one of them goes whoosh, whoosh. No way any aircraft can make this move. It's a ship. And I'm like, he just had a UFO fly over on my behalf because he telepathically asked him to come over. So here's the here's the, the grand finale of the story. And you can put it in the show if you want. They can all think I'm crazy. So he's telepathically looking down one more time. And he says, look up now. At like 500 feet, there is this white plasma burn-in about as wide as a two-lane highway in total silence. Hmm. Right on my head. I got to catch my breath. What just happened? He says, oh, he, he really liked your, your energy. So he did the equivalent of a flying saucer peel-out where he like popped the clutch and burned out. Changed my life. How do you how do you come back to regular life when you know you've seen it really happen? And your buddy who's telling you the stories that he really created a prime direct is the guy. Hmm. So there you go. Out of 150 episodes of this podcast, we never had any uh, real life encounters with UFOs before. So you're a first right now for that. No, no, no. I, I, I saw it. I saw it. I've seen him. I've seen him at other times too. But this was personally having somebody request it and learning the story that he was the guy that shared all the concepts, Prime Directive, and Outer Federation plans with Roddenberry and company. In fact, at one point, Roddenberry said to him, "Hey, you know, Wes, you know, we're using all your stuff. We want you to be part of it." And Wes goes. Oh, no, 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 no. That's all free. Don't worry about that. But it's just his, his personality. And in fact, interesting, at the lectures in the 60s, the FBI used to come too. In fact, while Wes was pr proud of it, he actually had chairs he put reserved for FBI. He was, he, he was sharing this knowledge. He was, he was doing what he felt he needed to do as a, as a persona. Never made any money on it. Pretty much passed away 
never making a lot of money. Let's put it that way. Hmm. So, so these, there, there's some books that you can find on the, um, on the internet. One called, his name is Wesley H. Bateman. The Rods of Amun-Ra was the book on the, the pyramid math, but there's also one called Knowledge from the Stars, which is the whole rundown on the Federation and all this other stuff. And it can be bought on Amazon. And then there's another one called Through Alien Eyes, which was his final work, which also I'm going to be working on that one too. Summary is, we're so messed up down here that we are not allowed to do above board's business with uh, the Federation. But meanwhile, there's a secret space program that's going on that we know nothing about. And, and actually, we're at a time where that's going to get revealed. They're going to use it. They're going to use the alien card to, quote, unify us against the aliens. But they're not bad. Well, there's good guys and bad guys to all the point. It's, it's not just like only good ones. It's like anything. So it's like the Wild West. There's good guys and bad guys everywhere. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to First Contact Day because uh, all Star Trek fans are. Uh, but beyond that, I just want to, again, thank you, Alan, for telling us a lot of really great stories today about your work, because uh, really, you, you've revealed a lot of stuff that I think a lot of folks don't know, and a lot of folks don't understand, and a lot of them don't appreciate. And you are an expert in this field. You are a pioneer. Uh, there's no denying that. So thank you so much for just dropping all this great knowledge. I mean, I, I feel like we really basically walked out of a master class right here with you. So uh, thank you for all of that. Oh, great. It was great to share stories with you. Uh, you know, if you want to follow up on me, I have alanhoworth.com. Keep tracking me there. Facebook. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I have my Instagram. Uh, one of my monikers is Soundlord and Soundlord One. That's one of my, my handles. You can find me there. And then uh, just watch IMDb. I have a movie coming out in the fall called From the Shadows. Uh, that'll be theatrical release. That's a good score. So still active. Uh, I won't be done till I'm dead. So that's how it goes. Well, thank you again, Alan. I look forward to hearing more of your work, and uh, I obey the sound lord, so thank you so much. <laughs> That's it for this week's show. Thanks again for checking out Trek Untold. If you aren't already, please follow Trek Untold on social media, where you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, among others, all at Trek Untold. Don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube for the video versions of this show at youtube.com slash at Trek Untold. And subscribe to us on whatever platform you're listening to the audio version on. We always appreciate likes, shares, comments, thumbs up, ratings, and reviews, and whatever you can do to help spread the word about this podcast and inform other Trekkies about why they need to check this show out. If you're able to financially support this show, visit patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn about the different ways you can contribute to keeping this show going full speed ahead. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold, and remember... Fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by Treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms, is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network, and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.